The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast, Dr. Taz. Superwoman Wellness. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, where you know I am determined to bring you back to your superpowered self. Joining me today, another treat. I'm just getting lucky with these guests. I have Dr. Arthur Agustin. You guys know him. He is internationally recognized pioneer in cardiac disease prevention, author of the internationally best-selling book, The South Beach Diet, and founder of the Agustin Score, the Calcium Score, which we're going to talk all about, the best predictor of a heart attack. Welcome to the show, Dr. Agustin. Great to be with you, Dr. Taz. Well, we're thrilled to have you. We all know the South Beach Diet. So many of my patients bring that book into the office and ask me questions about it. So I'm so honored to have you on the show. But you have a new book that just hit the shelves in February, I believe, The New Keto-Friendly South Beach Diet. I am so anxious and interested to hear about your journey and what brought you with your cardiac background into the world of food and low-carb and keto which you know many people, the conventional community in particular, would be very quick to shoot keto down. So tell us a little bit about how all this evolved and what's different from the first book to the second book that just released this February. Sure. I mean, it all started in my cardiology uh, career, and I was interested in prevention. When I grew up, uh, you know, heart attacks were, were particularly common, uh, still the number one killer by far. I was always worried that my my grandfather died of a heart attack. I was Mm. always worried that my father would. And I was interested in prevention. And frankly, we didn't do a lot after somebody did have a heart attack. We just monitored them for abnormal heart rhythms, but didn't do much. And then in the 80s, um, I was interested in prevention. And the popular culture was just uh, low fat. And, and we tried that with my patients. It didn't work mm-hmm. um, initially. And then um, came the statin drugs. Right. And yeah, that could lower your cholesterol a lot. Um, but it didn't seem like the primary, you know, just high cholesterol. Actually, we think total cholesterol is a worthless measure. Um, mm-hmm. But what we, what we, did was the important thing was not so much what your cholesterol was, but if you were building up plaque, because we knew a lot of our patients who had heart attacks just had very average or even low cholesterols. Today, we understand why, then we didn't. Um, But then there was a new technology called the ultra-fast CT scanner or the imagery. And um, I realized we could see uh, calcified plaque in the coronaries quickly, inexpensively, easily. And we already knew that the more calcified plaque you had, the more total plaque. And so uh, we we developed a, uh, an application for that, and it's really stood the test of time. And we recommend, recommend that as the starter where there's heart disease in the family or multiple risk factors. So we started using the calcium score and you see calcified plaque up to you know, 20 plus years before you actually have a heart attack. So we're right. seeing a lot of asymptomatic non-heart attack people with a lot of plaque and a lot of them didn't have very high cholesterols. Um, a lot of them did have what was just 
introduced by Dr. Reeven as pre-diabetes in the late 1980s. And they had mm -hmm. heart disease. They had a lot of plaque, but they didn't have very high cholesterol. And we realized that was all due to diet. The low-fat diets uh, of the national guidelines we knew didn't work. Um, the statins did lower the, lower the cholesterol. And the idea was everybody develops plaque at a different level of cholesterol. The cholesterol mixes with all kinds of other risk factors. And so the amount of plaque tells you how it's mixing in you as an individual. With everything else. Yeah. Well, that's really important information for everyone listening. You know, first of all, I do want to remind everyone, since we have a lot of women watching the show, that uh, heart disease and cardiovascular disease is still the, one of the number one killers of women. Many people think this is just a male-only issue, but this applies to women as well. And then for a lot of us women, including myself, uh, we've got husbands or brothers or fathers that have a significant history of cardiovascular disease. You know, we were talking about my husband, Vic. Many people know that I talk about him from time to time, who had a heart attack at a very young age last year, in fact, at the age of 41. And kind of navigating that journey with him and sort of the trauma that he went through because he worked really hard to adjust his diet and lose weight and do all these different things that he thought he was doing right to only have a heart attack literally a year or two into that journey. And that has been, I think, confusing for him. He's come out of it. We're, you know, a year out from that journey. But I think this is really important information to sift through. I and so many others are still victims of the 80s low fat era where, you know, we thought like I tell the story all the time where I thought drinking Diet Coke and eating popcorn, I was doing a good job because I was low fat, you know, so, you know, I've come a long way since then. But how, so you made a really important point that I hope everybody caught that it's not just cholesterol, it is cholesterol mixed with other lifestyle factors that then determine formation of plaque. Maybe tease out what are those other factors? Because for the person on, on, you know, listening to us or watching us, you know, many of them are fixated on cholesterol. I see them in the practice. I know you do too, but they're fixated on that cholesterol numbers. Why might they be missing the whole story? Well, let, let me emphasize again, your total cholesterol is in an individual, it's really useless um, as a predictor of who's going to have a heart attack. Um, and you know, the most important risk factor is our lifestyle and our diets. Wow. And that's what really changed um, with the wrong national guidelines, frankly, and, and the low fat. What happened in the 80s where the obesity epidemic started was it was our increase in sugar mm -hmm. and other bad fats, uh, not saturated fats necessarily. It can be for some people, and if you have a bad diet to begin with, the saturated fats can be really bad, but not in isolation. There are plenty of societies, the Eskimos, the Maasai, the Mongols, who had high meat diets who were perfectly healthy. Right. Um, so the big thing is the lifestyle. What we've learned, though, is it's your, your tendency to increase insulin levels. Mm -hmm. And that happens by when you're eating the wrong foods, processed carbohydrates. Number one is sugar. And when, yep. when, when they said no fat, food tasted horrible. <laughs> so right. how were food companies to make it taste better? Well, if you add sugar 
And they added a lot in high fructose corn syrup, which was just um, really developed around the same time. And that was hidden. So, you know, putting a couple of sugar lumps in a cup of coffee like our parents and grandparents used to do (coughs) is, is not so bad. But the amount of sugar we're getting is so much is hidden in processed foods, and we don't even know it's there. And that's what increases our insulin levels. That increases fat in our liver. It turns the sugar into fat. That produces fat that hurts our liver, our pancreas. Um, It flows into the bloodstream and causes coronary disease. That's the number one cause of obesity, of diabetes, and all our chronic diseases, including cancer, including autoimmune disease. And so that's very important. But particularly for people who have heart attacks at young ages or bad family history, there are genetic causes. Um, And if you have just one genetic cause, Mm -hmm. it's unlikely alone to cause heart disease. In some families, it does. Some people are unlucky. This is a small minority um, that have many genetic causes where they can be lean, thin, and still develop heart disease. One happens in women a lot. It's called um, HDL dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And so some HDL is a good cholesterol, but it's not good in everybody. And so, in in fact, in my wife's family, you talked about your husband. Mm -hmm. They had her father died at 51 of a heart attack, and it was due to this HDL dysfunction um, and it's also seen and often missed in, in women. We can diagnose that. So for somebody like your husband, um, right. it's, he had a heart attack at a young age. Lifestyle could have played an important role, but you have to look at the genetic factors also. But in general, if you have a good lifestyle, you're not eating the sugar and the bad carbohydrates and the wrong fats, um, then that usually overcomes a lot of bad genetics. But once you have the wrong food, then these other genetic factors become very important. So interesting. So what would you say, so let's talk about the keto diet and the South Beach diet and this whole concept, because I think that's really critical here. And there's a lot of confusion around that. You probably saw the study that came out where they said that, you know, coconut oil and all these other things are driving up lipid markers and contributing to more heart disease. And as a clinician, it gets really confusing. Like, what do you tell people? So how do you sift through that when it comes to keto in particular? South Beach, I know people understand, but maybe run us through South Beach and run us through what's new with your most recent book talking about the keto-friendly South Beach diet, maybe what's new there and what you've found in the interim time between the two books. Sure. Um, With the original South Beach diet, at that point, there was sort of the strict low-fat, Ornish-type diet um, in Pritikin, and then there was a high-fat, the Atkins. And Mm We, we sort of said it's, it's the good fats and the good carbs. So there have been societies that have been high carbs. Um, the, the Okinawans were famous. They had a lot of sweet mm-hmm. potatoes, had rice, but they didn't have sugar and the bad carbohydrates, and they did fine. And then the, the high fat societies, they call the French paradox, where mm-hmm. a lot of saturated fat, um, but not sugar and not bad carbs, they they cooked and ate very well. 
and they and so they didn't have heart disease. And so it's really looking at the carbs that are good and bad and the fat that's good and bad. And so the new uh, the, the new book emphasizes that as the old book emphasized good and bad carbs. Well, we've learned more about each. So one thing we said in the first book was have frequent snacks that'll stabilize your or frequent meals that will stabilize your insulin levels. Mm -hmm. We now know that frequent meals, every time you eat um, with some of the wrong food, it bumps up your insulin levels. And if you divide the number of calories you eat per day into many feedings, you end up with much, uh, much higher levels of insulin. And we now know the cause. It, it, it's something called incretins, but we didn't know why in the early 2000s when we wrote the um, the South Beach book, the, the initial South Beach. And so we've learned um, better ways. The other thing was the duration of the diet. We also often emphasize slow weight loss. And mm -hmm. after two weeks, we went from phase one to phase two. What we've learned also since then is by eating the good carbs and good fats strictly, and even intermittent fasting, which is also yep. new, or yep. fasting, um, it you you switch from burning carbohydrates to learning how to burn fats. You 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 really give training to your enzymes that can burn your belly fat, but it mm -hmm. takes about a month or more to be able to burn your fat. Or, uh, efficiently. And a lot of athletes have learned that now. A lot of the triathletes, um, even soccer players mm -hmm. who are on low carb and persist, they have better endurance, um, better performance. And so the old idea of carb loading, that the, carb loading, before, right. the, mm -hmm. um, the marathon, you'd have pasta and everything else. Right. Um, that was and in fact, some very famous marathoners in later years developed a diabetes because they had done so much carb loading, even though they were thin. And mm -hmm. they were, it's called toffee, you know, thin on the outside, mm -hmm. fat on the inside. Yeah. Uh -huh. Even these marathoners, when you looked at their livers and fat around their livers, uh, they were fat on the inside. And wow. I have a lot of those patients now. You know, I always talk about my my studying in airports that you right oh yeah families and oh uh, I know it's fascinating I'm always yes always looking at people I've told my husband before this pandemic uh, you know because I travel a lot and do stuff too and I'm like I remember looking at him going I feel like the planet is sick is kind of what I said to him I feel like I look at people and I just see mass sickness and I think it's what you're talking about like you study you see a group going by you see children going by you see the that deposition in young boys. I mean, it's just, it's a problem. And it's, it's all sugar. It's all sugar and carb loading is where it's all coming yeah, from. The, the, and and the, the bad, the bad carbs again. Yeah. But the, and it's happening in teenagers. We used to not see type two diabetes. Right. Kids and teenagers. Now it's very, it's very common. Um, you know, when I was in elementary school and high school, there one or two fat kids in the class. I remember right. who they were and their family. And in that case, it was genetic. They were not diabetic. It was these mm -hmm. relatively rare causes of obesity. Now, half the class is 
fat in right. a lot of these. And it's all the sugar. And I had this experience I talk about it in the book. I was truly addicted to sugar. So yeah. I was a cardiologist to diet doctor. Now I hit it well. I was more, it was totally. Mm-hmm. So especially mm-hmm. if I was in the right clothes, you wouldn't, right. you'd never say I was overweight, but I had a belly. I could always lose it with the first phase of the South Beach diet. But as soon as I went to the second phase and added carbs, I frankly cheated. And the first mm-hmm. time I tasted sugar, I, I just continued. Um, mm. And then I read it was actually Robert Lustig's book. I'll give another book uh, plug, um, mm-hmm. The Hacking of the American Mind. And he showed that, that sugar was truly an addiction. And if you got a rat addicted to sugar and cocaine and you hit, they could hit the cocaine bar or the sugar bar, they hit the sugar bar more than the cocaine. Wow. And uh. It's a, um, and it's, and so a lot of the addictions we have to kids with cell phones, mm-hmm. um, kids, I mean, the, the, the vaping that they do now, yep. um, mm-hmm. that's all these addictive behaviors. They also sort of cross over and what you want to do, it's, it's a, it's a pathway in the brain. It's called the dopamine pathway. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is stimulate your serotonin pathway instead. And that's done by all the things I know you talk about all the time, you know, uh, family relationships um, and all those, uh, those, those good things that our parents and grandparents emphasized, family dinners together. um, Those all stimulate the good pathway and suppress the bad dopamine pathway. And so all this, um, all this relates. And once I realized that it was not, I thought I was just not disciplined. You know, why don't you, mm-hmm. I knew what to do. But once I re, I realized it was a true addiction, um, mm-hmm. that's, it's now two years, I've gotten rid of my belly and I've continued to do it. And here I'm Mr. You know, diet do- doctor and cardiologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and since understanding that our success uh, with our patients Right. Uh, with warnings and not they're not all addicted but many um many are and how do we so you know how do we make people realize that they may be addicted because so many patients come and see me or talk to me and they promise me that you know especially women because there's so much hormonal stuff going on with women too at the same time you know and they promise that they're not eating a lot of sugar eating a lot of carbohydrates what are some things they could be doing that they may not be conscious of, even myself probably, that we're just not conscious that we're doing, that is almost like a trained behavior that is just used to carbohydrate and sugar addiction? Yeah. What are some things you notice? Sometimes they are eating frequently. And if there's mm-hmm. any carbs, they think they're having minimal uh, carbs. Um, sometimes it's too much fruit, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> and okay. you know, yeah. we talk about the vegetables, but um, there was, you know, one famously, this this patient in our practice, mm-hmm. his blood sugar all of a sudden went off the wall. And usually, it's an infection. Did they go on a cruise? Did they, right. you know, have some stress where they they just ate more? And we really couldn't figure it out until he said his mango trees in the backyard here in Miami uh, uh-huh. became uh, 
you know, every, everything became ripe and he was eating mangoes right and left. Now that's a tropical fruit, has a lot of fructose, which is the really bad sugar. Uh, glucose right. alone um, in carbs is not so bad, except when you take all the fiber out then it becomes bad. It produces a lot more insulin. But anyway, so in this case, it was fruit. And we've had a lot of people who have a lot of fruit for breakfast. And we were meant to eat fruit, but just when it ripened before the winter, when actually we had to store some fat. Uh, right. I, in the book, I have a great example of the grizzly bears, what they do before they hibernate. They become super insulin resistant. They... They will eat anything and everything. They deplete the forest of, of berries. Um, and that helps them store it's, it's six to 800 pounds of fat that they live off in the winter hibernation. Well, man and other, all other mammals are, are, are similar. So normally the fruit comes before the winter in northern climes. Um, and that's when you eat it, when you need some extra fat. The sugar mm, turns to fat. Fascinating. And you need that to go through the, the winter famines usually. But today, when there's no famine, there's only feast. And right. tropical fruits and bad fruits are, are available year-round. Um, that, that's one that often people are not aware of. The other is if you have... Um, too much sugar substitutes. A little mm. occasionally is fine, but if you go nuts with that, it can light up the same center. It's called the nucleus accumbens in your brain that happens. It lights up from sugar, but also from cocaine, from video games and kids. It's all the same dopamine pathway. Wow. So yeah. unless, you know, at the beginning, you really get rid of that also. Um, you you can think you're you're doing well and you're you know you don't lose you don't you don't do it and so your the new keto kind of keto friendly approach to South Beach will that break these addiction patterns and um, then how adaptable <laughs> is it to children and to you know people who are just sort of trained their brains at this point to well, want yes, those we, um, you know, you know one size doesn't fit all. And so um, you can lose weight with the original South Beach diet, our phase one, except we do it longer. Because mm -hmm. it takes longer to get rid of the sugar cravings and the addiction. So the first phase is a minimum of a month and sometimes longer. Uh, gotcha. But it does decrease your insulin levels. And that's where you that's where you start to burn your fat. You have your own fat as, as a meal. Mm -hmm. Now, um, for some people, you know, where, where like the ones you mentioned, they say they're doing everything right. Um, the advantage of keto is you can actually, it, it's not the fat loss. It's that there are some advantages of being ketosis for people, um, possibly with, with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, with degenerative diseases. Right. Um, kids who have seizures. Um, they realized in the, from the 1920s that putting them in ketosis helped prevent the seizures. Mm -hmm. And so there's some, in some cases where the ketones themselves may be helpful, but it doesn't 
really speed weight loss more than low carb, but you can measure if you're in ketosis. And so for patients who want numbers and want to know exactly what's happening, and frankly, for our patients where they tell me what they're eating, but I, I'm not sure, right. we'll suggest a complete keto diet because you'll know if you're in ketosis. Wow. And if you're not, um, there are hidden things, um, you know, sometimes some bad proteins and other things that can take you out of, you know, out of ketosis. So we, so for those patients, we do that. And then, then um, the thing about fasting and intermittent fasting is it's very simple. You don't eat anything for the prescribed time. Right. And, and some people, particularly at the beginning, it's important. I have a very good friend who, um, in fact, he's a lawyer. He always, I always said, you're my worst patient. He said, well, I'm mm-hmm. his worst client. Well, um, <laughs> the it. fact is, he was, um, he's a gourmet, he's always traveling. Mm-hmm. Only time he lost weight was when he broke his leg and he stayed home. He cooked low carb, yeah. wonderful yeah. soups and everything else and did well. I always threatened I was going to break his other leg. Uh-huh. He finally said, <laughs> we have to do a fast. And it was uh-huh. a five day fast. He went off his insulin his blood sugars in a week wow. came totally back to normal. And so for some people, it's almost all or nothing. And right. then if I say don't eat anything, it's hard for them to say, well, I just had that. I had that, mm. uh, something else. It's, um, you know. And is fasting a part of the the new plan too, the keto-friendly South Beach? Do Again, you include fasting? It's, it's as, yeah. uh, with people, uh, as people need it. The problem, you know, as I mentioned, that when mm-hmm. you eat snack, even if it's nuts, even if it's good, if it has carbs, every time you eat that, you do yeah. get an amplification of the amount of insulin. Mm-hmm. And that's a little technical, but but it's um, how it happens. But so um, so by intermittent fasting and having your meal once a day or twice a day, there are very good studies now um, that that you um you do improve you do lose you do lose weight and where if you're eating throughout the day even if you're eating relatively well you keep bumping up your insulin one good example and and there are studies now by there's a dr panda who's done a lot of good studies on sort of circadian um Mm -hmm. rhythms and most americans unlike in the 1970s are they're what we call grazing um, you know, where you're eating really throughout the right. day. And right. when I know when I was young, I never, you know, that's a relatively recent term because we didn't used to do it. So when you're eating throughout the day and keeping your insulin levels high, mm-hmm. you cannot burn insulin because the insulin is blocking the enzymes that allow you to burn fat. I'm sorry, I didn't say insulin. You can't burn fat. So normally, um, you know, when you're, you have even traditionally three meals a day right? and you go to sleep and you're not eating throughout the night, your blood sugar drops. And so normally you go to your liver and you eat some fat, some stored fat and some stored, uh, you know, glycogen, uh, really starch. And right. that's how you, your brain and your, and your heart keeps working throughout the night. But if your insulin levels are high because you've kept them high all day, 
they also stay high throughout the night. So the typical overweight you know, sort of sugar addict, um, in the middle of the night, they get up starving, they raid the refrigerator, and you know all their discipline goes away, and they eat. That's because they're hungry in the middle of the night because they still have high insulin levels, so they can't they can't consume their own fat, mm. and so that's why it's so important to give time for your insulin levels to drop. Eating the right foods does it, but the simplest way to do it is just not to eat. <laughs> that gives not to eat, and it's so frustrating for people because they're feeling the hunger because of their higher insulin levels that they're trying to feed, but at the same time they technically don't need to be eating. You know, one of my most challenging populations and a population that is high risk for cardiovascular disease, as well as what we're all going through right now with COVID-19. In fact, they found, I'm sure you followed the studies that in the, you know, we've said the elderly, the elderly, the elderly, but we're also finding in the younger population, the commonality of those folks having complications from COVID-19 has been obesity. And so for the the more obese, not the slightly overweight, not those with just a belly, but those with significant weight to lose, you know, my heart goes out to that population. It tell let them know what is the trick to losing this weight. Because I think that tincture of time is something that they lose a lot of patients with because they're in a high insulin mode and it takes a lot of time to get them out of that to see results. What would you tell yeah. their, your cardiovascular patient, the complicated patient in the hospital, you know, what would you tell them? Because they're just as frustrated with that situation as we are in trying to get them results. Well, first, I really do want to uh, emphasize <laughs> what you just said, that it is the number one risk factor. There was a study just that completed at NYU Mm -hmm. is obesity. But when they say obesity, there is the small fraction of the population, we call them fat and fit. They don't mm -hmm. have high insulin levels. That was a couple of people in my class, their parents didn't have early heart disease, but it's the high insulin. And right. High insulin, even if you're tofi. So anybody with, if you see fat in their belly, they have fat in their liver and they're at higher risk for infection. We've always known that if you're diabetic, um, if your sugars are high, uh, you don't heal well after surgery, you're at higher risk for complications of everything. Mm -hmm. And so Corona is just one of those, uh, one right. of those things that right. you're at higher risk for. So eating um, the way we're, we're recommending um, is important. And I, I do want to say that, that um, I know diet you recommend with whole foods and healthy, mm -hmm. that it's, it's not a formula. And the idea we want to get across in the book, in, I, we, so with my patients, I will sometimes start um, on just the traditional uh, South Beach phase one, but longer. Um, mm -hmm. If I think um, I want to measure them, they need to be measured, I will recommend keto. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, like my friend, I will say it's all, it's all or nothing. And we've had success even starting with a longer fast or at least an intermittent fast. But the faster you bring down your insulin levels and what we went actually in the book, I call pre pre diabetes because your, your basic blood sugar or hemoglobin A1C is normal, particularly in younger patients. It takes a while for the pancreas to burn out 
um, where you're not producing um, enough insulin and your blood sugar goes up. So mm -hmm. even the young people who are dying, in fact, um, the first New York City policeman, they had a picture of him, who was the first yeah. to die of heart. He was huge. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, a doctor from the University of Miami, Miami was the first doctor who, who died of, of corona. He was huge also. And so what the studies are showing is true. So to avoid corona, um, you want to lower your insulin levels. And the quickest is with intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And you can start by just skipping breakfast um, and having your first meal at, at lunch or after and that, um, and, then, and then extend it. Um, there's a hormone called ghrelin that goes mm -hmm. up at meal times. Um, and the best example, if it's your usual lunchtime, and you find you, you're hungry, but you're super busy, you're concentrating on something else, and a few hours go by, and you realize, hey, I didn't eat lunch, and I'm not hungry. That's because this hormone ghrelin, it goes up for about an hour, and then it goes down. So the hunger goes away. So if you're disciplined at the beginning, um, you don't have to stay disciplined. And people have always known that with prolonged fasting. We're not, right. for the general public's sake, go out and take a, a prolonged fast. At least you right. can do that, but with somebody who's, you know, who's experienced right. working with those patients. And, and that's just, that's something we use occasionally. Um, but but um, for uh, for you know a day, um, the ghrelin hunger that goes away in a couple of days, and so you're no longer hungry. And the other thing is just staying away from everything sweet, which mm -hmm. will sustain that addiction component of sugar and the and the bad and the bad carbohydrates. And once I did this, when I realized my addiction. The reason I stayed on the diet was not cosmetic. Some people ask whether I had a, a facelift or something because you right. lose weight right. here also. Um, right. But it was, I felt so much better. My exercise endurance, I, I, I box. They're not allowed yeah. to hit me. Right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but um, and, you know, and play tennis singles. And, um, and so my endurance, once I became fat adapted, um, mm -hmm. You don't run out of fat. You run out of the sugar um, quickly. You know, with a marathon, you run it out of it in a couple of hours, and you you do what they call hitting the wall. You right. run out of your sugar stores, and all you can burn uh, is is fat, and you're not used to hitting the. And the more the more sugar and carbs you load up with, the longer it is before you're hitting the wall. Yeah. So, so that's what um, was was always, you know, was what that's what marathoners would do. But the ones who are low carb, you have enough fat to last for going. Yeah, to keep yeah. going, certainly through that. Wow. Fascinating stuff. What do you think that time lag is? Like just to give people some sort of window, six weeks to start seeing lowering of your insulin, four weeks. What do you think that amount of time oh, to tell the patient? Literally in days, I was mentioning this friend in yeah. five days. 
Wow. Um, okay. And what the first thing that comes down if you're measuring is your triglycerides, mm-hmm. because that's what the sugar turns into in your liver. It turns into triglycerides. And that's been measured by Dr. Robert uh, Lustig in studies with teenagers. They were taken off sugar in 10 days. They, their triglycerides plummeted. Their mm-hmm. fat in their liver, which they measured with MRI, um, that came down. Um, they, uh, their, their blood sugars, their insulin levels, everything improved. Um, now to sustain it and get rid of the belly fat and not rebound, you have right. to go longer, but you get rid of the cravings if you're not having other sweets um, really, really quickly. And in general, you feel so good for me, the energy, I felt I was thinking better. Yep. Um, stomach pains, uh, irritable bowel type of things go, uh, go away. The other thing that when you're grain-free, when you're, when you're strict, you're also... Uh, you're unintentionally gluten-free. And and that's one thing I realized. In the first phase, patients felt so good, they never wanted to go to the second phase of our diet, which started in two weeks for Mm slow weight loss. I thought that that was um, because it was a fast weight loss they wanted. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we had psoriasis go away, autoimmune stuff clear up, neuropathies. And I realized some of that um, was was certainly the decrease in insulin, but some was because they weren't having excess gluten from the wheat and rye and all that. So so it's a combination, but the how consistently people feel better when they do it. And that's what sustains them for the long term. And that's what sustains me. And again, I would cheat. And as soon as almost without realizing it, I would have uh, you know, a great uh, a loaf of bread or, uh, right. or something else. I, I just, well, I'll have one slice. Right. It's like the potato chip. And that breaks it almost. Yes. And that breaks it. And then and then for me, I can't stop. That's how Wow. And and so many patients tell me the exact same thing. And I see that over and over again. Oh my gosh. I just looked at the time. I could probably talk to you for another two hours. I have like a million more questions, but I probably should let you enjoy the rest of your day. But thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. And I feel like we didn't get to the calcium score, more about cholesterol, all this other stuff but I'm sure you cover some of this in your book. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where we can get your book and how anybody watching today can connect with you. Well, um, at at Amazon and all the the usual places you can buy the the book. And um, it's uh, southbeachdiet.com is is the website where you can learn more about the book and and the diet. Perfect. uh, Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This is truly an honor. You are... A wealth of knowledge and information is fascinating to to hear all of it and try to piece it together over time and see how things have shifted and developed, especially in the time we're in right now where we're dealing with a global pandemic and we're learning day by day. I've been saying it, I'm sure you have too, but it's slowly clicking in the general consciousness. We're slowly getting into that awareness that is it is our overall health that is ultimately going to determine our outcome with this virus and with the next one to come and the next one and all that other stuff. So I think it's such critical and important information to get our weight under control, to get inflammation down, our heart health where it needs to be, because 
it just puts us at risk for so many other things. And that's true for men and for women. So thank you so much. I okay, my, my pleasure. And it was a pleasure meeting you and yes. you're on the right track in, uh, in concluding how to prevent Corona. Keep your thank you. Thank you. Are you right and exercise? Definitely. And for everybody else watching us today on Superwoman Wellness, thank you for joining this episode of the show. And remember that we are on Spotify as well, so you can rate and review it and share it with your friends. I will see you guys next time.